1: There are reports of hospitals experiencing significant payment reductions from so-called forensic audits. These audits are conducted by third-party auditors on outlier claims, including Medicare Advantage claims. Reporting our lead story this morning will be Amanda Gilliland. She is a revenue integrity nurse auditor at UW Health in Madison, Wisconsin. Also on today's Monitor Monday, you'll hear about the recurring problem of hospital readmissions. Dennis Jones with Montefiore Nyack Hospital is standing by with that important report. TPE audits are back in the news. Two different MACs conducted two different TPE audits on the same issue. Leanne Wilhelm will report on the surprising differences between two audits that took place at her company. Whistleblower attorney Mary Inman is standing by with an update on the Providence-St. Joseph's false claims lawsuit. And health care attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. We have much news to report, but we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday.
0: Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1RCM. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch.
2: Well, good morning, all. We're all well aware of the increasing cost of medical care. Unlike the recent insulin price increases that are due strictly to corporate greed, The new chemotherapy drugs and biologics, which are priced in the tens of thousand dollars per dose, have changed lives. A new threshold was was reached when CAR-T therapy for certain types of cancer was FDA-approved in 2017 and priced at over $375,000 per treatment. Fortunately, Medicare has established a new technology add-on payment for this treatment, but the add-on payment is set at 50% of the cost. So this treatment can result in significant losses for hospitals and payers. I wrote about this in a Rack Monitor article last year if you're interested in reading about the cost-to-charge ratio calculations made by hospitals. Now, as with many new therapies, once effectiveness is shown for a few cancers, it is tried for other cancers. And because of concern of what is called indication creep and the huge financial expenditure for treatment, one year ago, United Healthcare asked CMS to develop a national coverage determination for CAR-T therapy. And last week, CMS released their proposed decision memo. It's a 75-page technical analysis that shows that CMS does not take the NCD process lightly. Now, there's a 30-day comment period. If your institution provides CAR-T, now is the time to have your experts review the proposal and submit comments. As I pointed out in the past, CMS reads every comment and response. Now, I want to update you on something else. We all know that the patient needs a three-day inpatient stay to qualify for a Part A skilled nursing facility stay. But what if the patient stays two days, is ready for discharge, then appeals their discharge? That appeal is going to take a couple of days. If the QIO agrees with the hospital that the patient was stable to discharge after two inpatient days, do the next two days waiting for the appeal mean the patient has met the three-day requirement? I've always referred to the Medicare Claims Processing Manual, Chapter 30, which states, When a beneficiary's liability for a hospital stay is waived, the hospital days to which the limitation on liability applies cannot be used to satisfy the three-day prior hospitalization requirement. Since the services rendered during the days in question were found non-covered because they were not considered reasonable and necessary or because they constituted custodial care. And I've said, no, the days don't count. But the quality assurance manager at Levanta says the days do count. She went on to explain that the QIO is not declaring that any days are not medically necessary. They're simply agreeing or disagreeing with the hospital's decision to discharge the patient. She said Levante even asked CMS what to do if the patient appears that they're appealing simply to qualify for a SNP stay, and CMS reportedly tells them it does not matter. As long as the inpatient admission decision was appropriate, they have their three days. Now, would Keepro give the same answer? Who knows?
1: Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Targeted, probe, and educate TPE audits are back in the news. Two different MACs conducted two different TPE audits on the same issue, knee orthotics. Here now the report on the surprising differences between the MAC audits is Leanne Wilhelm. Good morning, Leanne. Welcome to the program.
3: Thank you, Chuck. In 2018, Connects went through two TPE audits, one from Meridian and one from CGS, both for knee orthotics. What I find very interesting is how vastly different the TPE audits can be from one DME MAC to the next. CMS is the founder of the TPE audit program, and I'm sure has outlined the process in great detail, but true to form, we find these two arms of CMS executing the program in a very diverse manner. Our first audit was from Neridian back in May, and with this being our initial TPE audit, we weren't really sure what to expect, but what we did find was how easy it was to work with Neridian, but their guidance and education was a regurgitation of the information from their website. A letter was mailed for each patient providing claim details as well as the ability to view the correspondence via their online portal. This feature was very helpful because, as we all know, the mail isn't always the most reliable way to deliver important documents or ensure they arrive timely. The portal also allowed the submission of the documentation, which instantly provided peace of mind knowing that it was received under Ridian's end. They did not provide additional communication until after a final determination was made and there was no steps or additional training required. Fast forwarding to several months and our second TPE arrived from CGS. The auditor reached out to us and provided contact information for questions throughout the process and she was very prompt with all the replies. Letters were sent for each patient, but this was only done via mail with no other tracking except for to call the auditor and have her run a manual report confirming what was sent. We did miss two letters via mail in this process, but we were able to identify the patients through the auditor's manual report. All documentation was submitted via fax, and if something was missing, a member of the audit team called us and gave us a five-day window to submit additional documentation. After a final determination was made, We fared very well, but CGS did require a full plan of improvement with ongoing monitoring and tracking. We were the only provider thus far not required to go on to round two of the TPE audits for knee orthotics. Overall, the process was very straightforward, but their interpretation of that process could use some tweaking as the audits continue."
1: Thanks, Leanne, very much. That was Leanne Wilhelm. Leanne is a compliance officer for Keenex. It's a multi state durable medical equipment company located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from David Glazer, Mary Inman, Dennis Jones, and our special guest, Amanda Gilliland. This is Monday, it's February 18th. It's President's Day, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by.
0: The Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act of 2015, known as MACRA, revolutionizes reimbursement to physicians. It considers quality improvement activities and prevention of disease instead of just what level of service was billed. AHIMA's on-demand webinar titled MACRA and its Effect on Physician Coding and Billing covers the changes that physician practices will need to make in their documentation, coding, and billing to survive the change in reimbursement. Walk away with ideas to help physicians document better, which improves patient care as well as meets the goals laid out by MACRA. Take advantage of AHIMA's timely, flexible solution to keep pace with the rapid changes happening in the health information industry. Read more about the webinar, MACRA, and its effect on physician coding and billing, and other titles at Ahemastore.org. Thanks, Clark.
1: And a program note, be sure to register to attend a very important webcast coming your way tomorrow. It's entitled, Biggest Rack Changes Are Here. Learn how to avoid Denied claims. This webcast is tomorrow, so Tuesday, 1.30 p.m. Eastern. To register to attend, click on the handout tab of today's Monitor Monday, and you can save 40 bucks when you use the coupon code MONDAY. And now for the Modern Money Risky Business segment, here is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. What's risky today? Good morning, Chuck. In a true irony, not the Alanis Morissette version, uh, I, too,
4: am going to talk about mail like Leanne, even though we don't get mail today. So there are a few easy things you can do that can prove incredibly valuable in any appeal or legal dispute involving the mail. Fans of Marie Kondo may think that it's best to throw everything out. But when it comes to communications from the government and payers, it's way better to be a pack rat. When you get a letter from a MAC, program safeguard contractor, or even a private insurer, keep the envelope and staple it to the letter. A client once received a letter dated July 15th. It arrived on September 17th. The good news is that they kept the envelope, which showed a postmark of September 15th. Since the client had 60 days to appeal, they could have been in a difficult position had they not been able to prove that the date of the letter uh, was inaccurate or didn't reflect when it was mailed. As a backup, stamp incoming mail with the received on date. If you've got a routine process of stamping all incoming mail, that process can be used to demonstrate when a letter was actually received. Basically, you can show people that you got the mail, you know, be a mail showist. So next, train your mailroom to recognize letters from the government and other agencies. I've had a number of clients lose significant appeal time because a letter was addressed to someone who was on vacation or on leave. In a business setting, mail needs to be opened even when the recipient is out. Obviously, if the letter has a bird on it, it merits extra attention, unless you happen to be on the Audubon Society mailing list. Now, the next tip is super obvious, but a recent client predicament demonstrates the importance of reminding people to pick up any certified letters. A clinic called me in a panic after learning that they'd had a physician's license be suspended weeks earlier. The licensing board had sent a certified letter to the physician notifying him of the decision. He didn't go get it. I should add that the whole reason the license was suspended was because he had failed to appear at a hearing, uh, which he asserted happened because he didn't see the emails he got notifying of him of the hearing. I would suggest that you have all of your licensed professionals have their licensed communications sent to the office. This lowers the odds that you're going to have one of your licensed professionals completely drop the ball without your knowledge. Have an assistant in charge of checking up on these professionals and their licensure status. And as for the physician who asserts that all of those emails went to his spam filter, it highlights that there's a problem with electronic mail that's a reality that we can't escape, and it's my final point. Look at your spam filter daily. All sorts of things go there. I know my firm's invitations to free webinars are routinely snagged, but that's way less important than the fact that I've had emails from the Department of Justice caught by mine. If you let a program grab what it assumes is junk mail, you need to manually review it. Now Chuck, my song this week is gonna combine the discussion about mail with the fact that I'm giving a speech in Anchorage, Alaska. So I'm going to go back to Michelle Schacht, who sent mail to Dallas but was surprised when the return came from Anchorage. She's anchored down in Anchorage.
5: Anchorage. Anchored down in Anchorage.
1: And I turn it back to you. Happy President's Day. Thanks very much, David. That was health care attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm at Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, hospital readmissions is a recurring problem. Here and now with that report is Dennis Jones. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning, Chuck. Thank you very much.
6: Hospital woes with readmissions began with Section 3025 of the Affordable Care Act. The legislation required CMS to reduce payments to hospitals for excess readmissions beginning in October of 2012. Hospitals who had a 30-day readmission rate significantly higher than the national norm were penalized a percentage, up to capped amounts of 1% and 2% for the first two years, and then up to a capped amount of 3% in all future years on all inpatient fee-for-service DRG Medicare payments. I'd like to emphasize three significant facts about the CMS Hospital Readmission Reduction Program. First, Inherent in the hospital readmission reduction program was an understanding that readmissions, particularly among the chronically ill, are to a degree unavoidable. Penalties were assessed to hospitals not on all readmissions but on readmission rates that significantly exceeded national averages. This fact acknowledges that there is a base level of readmissions that are expected in providing health care to an aging population. Penalties were assigned to hospitals that significantly exceeded calculated national readmission rate averages. Second, the Hospital Readmission Reduction Program targeted specific conditions that were identified as areas where readmissions could be avoided with improved clinical care. At first, three and finally expanded to six conditions were identified by the program. Heart failure, pneumonia, acute myocardial infarction, followed by chronic obst- obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, coronary artery bypass graft surgery, cabbage, and uh, elective total hip or total knee arthroplasty. Third, the financial stick of the program was a penalty, a reduction in payments, not a denial or zero payments for services provided. With CMS establishing the concept that they would penalize hospitals for readmissions within 30 days of a previous hospital stay in 2012 and 2013, It didn't take long for managed care insurance companies to come up with their own interpretation of CMS guidance to limit inpatient payments to hospitals. Fast forward to 2019. Major managed care payers have been establishing sweeping and general readmission policies of their own, such as from one of our payers, readmissions occurring within two to 30 days will be subject to clinical reviews. If the clinical review indicates that the second admission is for the same or similar diagnosis, it may be considered an an extension of the initial admission for the purpose of reimbursement. If substantiated, this may result in a a request to refund the payment for the second admission. In establishing these policies, insurance companies often state that they are following CMS guidance on their 30-day readmission policies. They are not. There is no identification of outlier hospitals that would suggest below par clinical care or discharge planning. There are not penalties for excess readmissions. There are individual denials of payments for inpatient care provided to the managed care company's beneficiaries. There is not a targeting of specific conditions or procedures. All readmissions are subject to non-payment. If your hospital is like my hospital, you've been besieged by denials and retroactive recoupments related to patients readmitted within a 30-day period. What my hospital is seeing is aggressive retrospective recoupment of payments without requests for medical records. We are seeing recoupment of our payments when the patient was an inpatient at another hospital within 30 days. We are seeing recoupment of payments for the first admission as often as for the readmission. We have not yet been able to gauge our success in in appealing readmission denials. I can tell you that the approach is different. Medical necessity appeals generally focus on the appropriateness of an admission gauged against clinical standards like Milliman guidelines. Appeals of readmission denials must focus on quality of care, proper discharge planning, and pre- provision for follow-up care. Documentation of noncompliance by the patient, such as patients who refuse home health care or those who continue activities like bad diet, alcohol consumption, etc., are very relevant to readmission appeals. Appeals must focus on whether readmissions were clinically related and were potentially preventable. This is an argument with very subjective boundaries. My educated guess is that this is a battle that hospitals, health systems, and hospital associations will be fighting for years to come. Now that we've discussed issues regarding ongoing initiatives by payers to limit or eliminate payments for readmitted patients, I'd like to acknowledge that this is President's Day and I'd like to close with some sort of related presidential trivia. Do you know who is the only American president to be readmitted to office? Chuck, Dr. Hirsch, anybody? Well, here, let me tell you. It was Grover Cleveland who was the 22nd elected president in 1885 and then reelected as the 24th president in 1893. He was the only president to serve two non-consecutive terms. I know I would have voted for the guy. Not only was he born in New Jersey – and was the former governor of the state of New York, he was the leader of a faction of the Democratic Party known as the Bourbon Democrats. Later today, let's raise a glass to
1: President Cleveland. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Seth, very much. I do remember that. That was Dennis Jones. Dennis is the Administrator of Patient Financial Services at Montefiore Nyack Hospital in Nyack, New York. We continue to monitor the $188 million false claims act lawsuit filed by MedAnalytics against Providence-St. Joseph's Hospital for allegedly upcoding various diagnoses. Here now with the very latest is Mary Inman. Good morning, Mary.
7: Good morning, Chuck. As regular Monitor Monday listeners know, we have been closely tracking the progress of data analysis firm Integra MedAnalytics whistleblower lawsuit against Providence Health and its consultant, J.A. Thomas & Associates. Alleging upcoding for complications or comorbidities. Although the federal government declined to join its case in, Octo- in August 2018, Integra Med Analytics has continued to proceed with the case on the government's behalf, as is its right. This case is being closely watched by healthcare industry experts because it is part of a growing trend of cases initiated by data anal- analysis firms turned whistleblowers who are reviewing the mountains of Medicare claims data CMS has made publicly available and launching whistleblower cases when they find patterns in the data that are indicative of fraud and can develop independent information confirming that the patterns were a product of fraud, not a competing innocent explanation. In this case, whistleblower Integra alleges that it analyzed seven years' worth of CMS claims data from 2011 to 2017 for a subset of Providence hospitals who used J.A. Thomas & Associates as a consultant and found that those Providence hospitals were statistically more likely than other hospitals to add to a hospital claim three secondary diagnoses, or MCCs. Encephalopathy, Respiratory Failure, and Malnutrition that can increase a hospital's Medicare payments by 1000 to $25,000 per claim. According to its complaint, Integra conducted what it describes as an exhaustive, multifaceted investigation, whereby it interviewed former employees of Providence and J.A. Thomas and reviewed their marketing materials to show that Providence's alleged false claims were not only intentional, but part of a systemic effort to boost Medicare revenue. Integra's complaint is replete with references to internal documents allegedly containing examples of J.A. Thomas coaching and steering Providence doctors to upcode for MCCs. Last week, Federal Judge Philip Gutierrez heard oral argument from all of the parties on defendants, Providence Health, and J.A. Thomas and Associates' motions to dismiss Integra's whistleblower case. Defendant's primary argument is that Integra's lawsuit is precluded by the False Claims Act public disclosure bar, which allows the judge to dismiss a whistleblower case if it is based on information already in the public domain, unless the whistleblower is the original source of the information, thereby preventing parasitic whistleblowers who simply read about a fraud scheme in the papers from filing a case and sharing in the government's recovery. According to the defendant's arguments, by relying on Medicare claims data and reports from HHSOIG expressing skepticism about the prevalence of coding particular MCCs like QuashiaCore, Integra has simply repurposed publicly available information to file its complaint and it should be dismissed. In response, Integra argues that it has supplied ample non-public information in the form of documents, witness statements, and chat room comments demonstrating that the alleged upcoding was part of an intentional effort to improperly boost Medicare reimbursement. The day after the oral arguments, Judge Gutierrez issued an order asking the parties to provide supplemental briefs on two issues, which give us a good sense of the judge's current thinking and where he might be headed for his decision. For the primary issue, the court noted that it is not convinced by defendant's argument that all information generally available online can constitute news media that has been publicly disclosed. Judge Gutierrez is clearly struggling with the difficult question in the age of social media, self-publishing, and everyone having an online footprint. Whether information shared on chat rooms or on individual YouTube accounts qualify as news media and therefore something the government can be expected to have known about and is publicly disclosed. Judge Gutierrez has asked all of the parties to help him with a difficult question of where he should draw the line between publicly disclosed news media and more obscure personal opinions, specifically seeking briefing to explain why or why not the chat room's YouTube data has or has not been publicly disclosed from the news media. It appears the resolution of this matter will turn on the answer to this precise question. We will be watching for the filing of the party's supplemental briefs, which are due on March 8th. Once the briefs are in, we expect the judge's ruling to follow in the ensuing weeks, perhaps as early as the end of March. That's it for me. Thanks. And back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Mary, very, very much. That was nationally recognized whistleblower attorney, Mary. Edmund Mary is a partner in the law office of Constantine Cannon, she was calling in live from London. We are receiving reports of significant payment reductions as a result of so called forensic reviews conducted by third party auditors. Reporting our lead story this morning is Amanda Gilliland. She is a revenue integrity nurse auditor at UW Health in Madison, Wisconsin. Good morning, Amanda. Welcome to Monitor Monday. What's your experience with these forensic audits?
5: Thank you very much, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Our experience is not wonderful, and I'm very pleased that you asked me to speak about this. Um, The so-called forensic audits that we're seeing are coming from a review company called Equian in Colorado. We see them mainly on Medicaid, HMO, and commercial claims. Um, I will note that we have also received similar types of denials from Optum, uh, who has also reviewed some MCA uh, accounts, MedReview, and Zealous, Z-E-L-I-S. But I will say they are all quite zealous in their attack on our charges. I am increasingly frustrated that medical necessary and appropriately billed services are being denied for spurious reasons, and I am not alone. It seems that many hospitals are receiving these denials and the ensuing reimbursement reductions in increasing numbers. Many of you have reported that you are appealing to the review companies and the insurers without success. Uh, Here is the scenario, an itemized bill is requested, but generally not medical records. The company runs the charges through their software software programs, and voila, they identify many charges they find to be not reimbursable. They state the charges are routine, not billable on an inpatient claim, and unbundled, meaning it sh- they feel should be included in the room and board charge or the operating room or procedure charges. The total denial per claim can run in the tens of thousands of dollars and include almost all supplies that are being billed. IV solutions, venipuncture charges, some medications, respiratory therapy service, point-of-care labs, glucose in particular, uh, also labs they think are point-of-care but aren't, um, services provided by hospital-paid professionals such as health psychologists the amount of time that an appeal can take is significant, especially because Equium demands to see the documentation that the services in question were provided. You know, they didn't request the medical record, but that is not the basis of their original denial. Um, They try to justify these denials by quoting the Medicare Provider Reimbursement Manual Section 2202.6, which very loosely defines inpatient routine services as those services um, generally included by the provider in a daily service charge, sometimes referred to as the room and board charge, uh, included in routine services are the regular room, dietary and nursing services, minor medical and surgical supplies, medical social services, etc., for which a separate charge is not customarily made. In appealing these denials, I have quite recently provided them with a 2004 letter from Herb Kahn, who was the director of the Center of Medicare Management, and a 2018 email from Rhonda Jones in the Dallas CMS office, which both make it very clear that Equian is misinterpreting the intent of 2202.6. I have not fully resolved any cases as yet. Uh, I'm in second-level appeals on some of them. Also, I do understand from others that emailed last week that the uh, clinical experts that they refer to for escalated issues are really not clinical at all. I, do have, uh, I have had some partial success with Equian. So far, um, after a series of weekly phone calls with some of their people, they have agreed to put what they call quirks in their systems, which are exceptions, but specific to our hospital to allow for some charges that they were routinely denying in the past, um, such as venipunctures, a few things like that. Um, also, in Wisconsin, um, if, we are, if you were not contracted with a Medicaid HMO, You can file a dispute with the state MA program. It can take months to get an answer, but um, everyone that I have filed, I have won, uh, and the payer has been told to pay us in full. In summation, I feel it is a travesty that these audit companies are getting away with profiting from their erroneous denials. We must put a stop to the siphoning of health care dollars away from hospitals who can ill afford to have their reimbursement cut. I hope many of you will share your experiences and hopefully successes that you have had in fighting these denials. Thank you very much. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thank you, Amanda. That was Amanda Gilliland. Amanda is a Revenue Integrity Auditor at UW Health in Madison, Wisconsin. By the way, you can send me any of those instances to my email address, cbuck at medlearnmedia.com dot com. I think that's going to be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Monday on President's Day. We thank you very much for being with us today. A special thanks to our outstanding panelists, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Mary Inman calling in live from London, Dennis Jones, Leanne Wilhelm, and our special guest whom you just heard, Amanda Gilliland. And we thank you for starting off your week with us this morning, and we look forward to your being right back here next Monday for another edition of Monitor Monday. In the meantime, I hope you're going to join me tomorrow for a very popular webcast coming your way in Titled Biggest Rack Changes Are Here. Learn to Avoid Denied Claims. This webcast is tomorrow, Tuesday, 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Remember, use the coupon code Monday and save forty bucks. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us.
0: Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.